This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. This is a bit of a theme. I've got another return guest, and this is Tyson Franklin. Everybody should be really familiar with Tyson because it's one of my best friends in podcasts. Yeah, I talk about him quite a lot, and you've probably heard his promo in the end. Actually, the episode after this one, I'll be releasing one of Tyson's episodes in my feed so you guys have a chance to hear his show. I think you really should check it out. So I'll be dropping one in. But I wanted you to meet Tyson again. He's the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T. He's written a couple books. But we're taking a bit of a departure because as a podiatrist, you never know what kind of patient walks in. And he had an incredible patient. How are you doing today, Tyson? I am fantastic, Eric. Thank you for having me back on. This is good. And yes, <laughs> when we, I think any anybody that sits in a room with people for half an hour at a time, they get some interesting stories, some good, some bad. That makes sense. And I don't know, um, I guess you probably see some people who might be getting up in age and maybe they're more forthcoming on their life and don't always get listened to at home. Yeah, that happens a lot. And I remember one particular old lady and she used to come in and she was deaf and she was blind. And <laughs> I think at the time, and she remember her saying to me, whatever you do, look after your eyes. Just make sure you look after your eyes. And I said, oh, when did your eyesight go? She goes, oh, when I was 101. Oh, my God. And, wow. And talk, talking to her and she used to tell me what it was like before um, people were flying on planes and just incredible. Yes. If you really sit down and listen to what older people have to say, some of them have got some incredible stories that they, they're like living history books. I totally agree. I actually, somebody posted a meme that I really loved. They were saying that you should put nurseries in with um, nursing homes. That so that sense. way you have children with the old and it helps raise the spirits of the old and it gets the children to learn from elders. Yeah, and, and probably share some of the stories. And sometimes like you wonder if some of the stories that they say are made up are the things that just happened in the head. Like especially like we used to get a lot of war veterans coming in. And in my early mm -hmm. career, you know, going back thirty years ago, you used to still get a lot of World War One veterans coming through. Mm -hmm. And and then they sort of uh, died off. And then a lot of the World War Two and Vietnam and, and that type of thing. So some of them had some incredible stories and then some of them I used to have a goal that how long could I control the conversation without this one particular guy uh, whose name was also Eric <laughs> would, would tell me a war story. And, and I'm sure this guy was about 50 pounds soaking wet, but huh. he won the war. Oh, single-handedly. Single-handedly. He, he made Sylvester. You had Artie Murphy? He made Rambo <laughs> look weak. This is how good this guy was. And then I remember another guy that was in my clinic who was you know, around the same age. And was quite a successful businessman in town, had a couple of petrol stations. And just out of curiosity one day, I said, you know what? I've never, ever heard you talk about the war. And he goes, mm. oh, well, let me think about it. He goes, I was in there for four years. He says, I'm, you know, I think he was, like, say, 80 at the time. He goes, I've, he says, it was four years of my whole life. He said, I had a life before I went in the army. I had a life after the army. So it's not True. something I really talk about. And I said, so did you, were you involved in any action? He says, yeah, a lot. He said, but I had a good life beforehand, a good life afterwards. And I said, why do some people, that's the only thing they talk about. And he said, well, for some of them, they didn't have much of a life beforehand and they didn't do anything afterwards. That was the highlight of their life was that 
three or four years. Picked. Said, unfortunately, and some of them, they just keep reliving those those moments. Um, and he said, but the guys, he used to say, that the guys that probably did the most are the ones that will talk the least. <laughs> the ones that mm-hmm. did the least mm-hmm. are the ones that talk the most about all the escapades that they got up to. Now, I don't know. I've never been in the military, so I don't know how true that is. Most veterans that I know, um, especially those who saw really heavy action, don't talk about it. They don't like to. And the only people they'll talk to are other veterans. Yeah, who were there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Or were in a war of their own. So that's why, like, we have VFW, um, Veterans of Foreign Wars, um, places where they'll meet up. And they talk amongst each other, but they won't even talk to talk about it with their families. They're very close-lipped. No, but I think, that, and, and that's and that's the that's always been the fun part of my job as a podiatrist because you're sitting down with people, and some people, yeah, you saw them as patients themselves, and then you eventually had their kids come in as patients, mm. and and then grandchildren, and you went, wow, I know I've been in the profession a long time, when you're starting to see generations <laughs> of patients coming in to see it, but some of them, yeah, some of them you'd see once a month, every month for like a 20 year period. So you, you got really, really close to them. Right. Right. What, what, was it one of those that you were close enough to them to where they could be intimate, but yet distant enough, they could feel comfortable. Um, yeah. And some of them, you just, you just got very close to them that you would become, you know, like, almost like family friends. You were, you know, you were invited to um, you know, parties that they were having at their house. And because you just got that, that close to them, but there was still always that patient podiatrist sort of like, line they wouldn't just sort of just rock up when they felt like it they would still have respect for you to make an appointment well sure sure (laughs) but it would almost be a regular thing a monthly okay you're a third thursday such and such is coming in or whatever probably yeah and some of them you um some of you really look forward to seeing and some of you're like oh no mrs jones (laughs) we're gonna talk about it used to have this one old lady used to rock up and she would park her car we used to have an entry into the car park that had like 30 spots she would just park her car in the entry. Out, come into the clinic. Next thing you have people knocking on the clinic door constantly. Uh, do you know who's parked the red car? Yeah, in the middle of the driveway. And you you're like, yes, yeah, unfortunately. James, did what car are you driving today? She goes, a oh, red one. I went. Do you know where you park is not really a car park? Oh, but I've been parking there for years. Oh, we know, we know you've been parking there for years because <laughs> once a month. You block the whole car, but no one can come or go for an hour. And uh, she goes, oh, but it's the closest park to the entrance to the building. We're going, because it's not a park. It's it's a driveway. <laughs> the thought of her driving used to scare me. I used to, used to feel like telling her, just let me know. Can you call me when you're on the road so I can make sure I get off? <laughs> <laughs> kind of have an anti-Uber app. Now, um. Okay, so this is leading us to one particular patient yes. that you had coming in. And from my understanding, you booked extra time just so you could hear his tales. This guy, this is one of the most interesting stories I've had in the, my whole 30 years of doing podiatry. And it was going back to, I moved to Cairns in 92. So I'm thinking it was like 94, 95 that I actually saw this bloke. And at the time, he was like in his late 80s. So, so when he first came into the clinic, he had at least three, three holes in his, in his leg. And I sort of looked at him and I jokingly said to him, oh, how did you get, you know, how did you get the bullet holes in your leg? And he went, 
he sort of looked at me strange and he said, um, you're the first person that has actually noticed that they were bullet holes. And I probably was just taking a wild guess. And <laughs> and he said, well, most people thought it was like a pitchfork or, or something. I said, no, it doesn't look like a pitchfork because the, the angle of the holes just don't don't look right. And I said, "So, uh, how did you how did you get the uh, yeah the holes in your leg?" And and then he tells me the story of oh how we got the holes in the leg, which was he said, "Oh, in the nineteen seventies, I was yeah in Sydney, and uh, I pulled over in a car, and and when I got out of the car, I was with my son. I got out of the car, and this car pulled up in front. And these other two guys got out, and they pulled guns on us, and they started shooting. So my son and I pulled guns out, and we started shooting back, and we killed them. I got shot in the leg, and I went." Oh, right, okay. Um, yeah, because that, that <laughs> happens every day of the week. And I said, what was that all about? He said, oh, my wife had a contract out on me. And I went, I, okay, yes. And, <laughs> and, I, and I said, so, so what happened to your wife? Oh, she unfortunately died in a uh, in a car accident. Her, uh, her brakes failed. Oh. And I went, oh, all right, okay. And I said, okay, so there's got to be a bit of a backstory before you even got – I said, how, how did all this happen? He goes – Oh, well, he goes, I haven't really told anybody this, he said. But um, so anyway, he's, he's given me a little bit of a refresh on what was happening. So then when <laughs> he was coming in for his next couple of appointments, I blocked out extra time because I wanted to dig deeper into what was actually going on. So uh, what was he like? I mean, personality-wise, temperament, size. He was a big Can you dude. describe him? Yeah, probably like he, he was old. So he was like in his mid to late eighties. He was just, but just a big. He was a big guy. Yeah, you can see some older people that you can just tell, even though they may have lost a lot of the the um, muscle bulk and things mm-hmm. like that. You could just see they're still just a just a big person and giant and shoulders type of thing. Off air, and I just sort of described him. Sort of reminded me of a like a Clint Eastwood type huh. figure, where he's just got that 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 sort of really rustic look about him and uh, a, a sort of a like a cheeky personality you know behind <laughs> behind the wrinkles um hmm. so yeah but a bit but he was friendly enough not like uh not like lively spoken or excited when he talked just like an older guy laid back easy going like he's lived his life and um yeah Sort of didn't talk a lot, but once I started prying into it, he started opening up and just telling me a little bit more. So, what really intrigued me is when I said, "How did you get to that point in Sydney for that to actually happen?" He said, "Well, I don't normally tell people this." He said, "But I used to be a hitman for Al Capone, so what? I've always been uh, like really intrigued with that whole nineteen twenties prohibition." Uh, sure mobsters you know how, how the whole organized crime thing really kicked off the mafia and all that around that around that era and so as soon as he said that my ears just pricked up and went oh my god i you now this guy is obviously is either nuts or i'm talking to someone that i'm never going to get to talk to again yeah in this sort of format so it would have been great if if this was going back now and you had podcasting equipment back then, I would have taken it all in and recorded this conversation with him. <laughs> it just right, except he would then be potentially putting himself in danger to be extradited. 
Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know how many years passed before. Um, there is no statute of limitations on murder. But it was, yeah. So, so anyway, when he mentioned that, he, he told me just, he mentioned that, that this is like right towards the end of that first visit. And I said, okay, well, I'm seeing you again next week. So I automatically just blocked out extra time. <laughs> but then I also went back and I checked his age, the dates. He was telling me that he was the hitman. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got to, if, he, if he's telling me lies, the dates aren't going to match up. So I went back mm-hmm. and I yeah, had a look through, I think I had my Encyclopedia Britannica or something at the time. And uh, I went and just checked a few dates. I said, well, his age, the dates, and everything he's told me so far match. And I went, okay, so if he's crazy, he's spent a bit of time doing a bit of homework to get this right. So I, I sort of figured out that, you know what? I don't think he is crazy. I think what he's telling me is the truth. So... He came back in the next visit. We, we did the podiatry partners, and I said, "Look, I've blocked out some extra time. I just want to talk to you more about that that time of your particular life." And he all of a sudden he sort of just it was like I felt like he was like confessing to me. What it's as though he'd wanted to hmm. tell people this story, but had sort uh-huh. of kept it to himself for so long for probably obvious reasons that he didn't want people to know, yeah, you know, sure. wasn't and what he had actually done. So it all started. He, he told me that his his family, his father. I'm not quite sure what the occupation that his father did, but whatever it was, it sort of worked his way up the ladder a certain amount, and then got offered this opportunity to go to the United States to uh, live and work. Okay, so he's a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. So he was an Australian guy, and okay. so his father, mother, and himself went over there. And I'm pretty sure he said at the time he was like fourteen. 15 maybe. So he'd sort of finished his schooling. So he didn't do any schooling over there in the States, but he still went with his family because he was too young to stay stay behind in Australia. Okay. So when he got there, he said it didn't take long, you know, like after a year or so of being there, that he could see there was there was this – so they went to Chicago. That's, that's where they ended up being based. And he said he could figure out pretty quickly there was this group of people that seemed to – dressed better, had more money, drove better cars, had good-looking women on their arms all the time and was sort of <laughs> just living the lifestyle that everybody else only dreamed of. And that's when he figured out that these mobsters or gangsters, whatever they were called back then, sort of just lived a lifestyle that he looked at and went, you know what, I'm looking at my parents' life, I'm looking at theirs, and I want their lifestyle. So he managed, I think he said he was about 16 16 or 17 or something, he managed to get a job in like the back room of like a speakeasy. So they had like a the bar thing at the front, but then at the back of the room, there was like a private, private room where only the real special people sort of used to used to meet. So, like a hidden room? Or, what's that? Like a hidden room? Yeah, or it was like just a room uh... behind. So you had like your main speakeasy thing, and then there was like another room out the back again. And he said okay. it was sort of like, when a lot of trucks, the secret door knocks and all that. Yeah, so when um, sort of like trucks would turn up with deliveries, all the stuff would come into that room first before it would then go out. So it was like probably like the back storeroom uh, type mm, thing. Okay. So he said he was in there for about a year or so, and he was around eighteen at the time. And he said in this one particular day, uh, he said this uh, door opens up, and this <clears throat> these two guys bring in this bloke. 
sort of all bound up and they throw him down in this chair and he's like, he's bound in this chair and he's sitting there just watching it going, oh my God, you know, what's going on here? He said, next thing, Al Capone comes walking through the door and he's just like, wow, okay, I know who this is. And Now, how do you describe Al Capone, if you don't mind? Um, because, I mean, this is a legendary figure. Um, the way he described him then was more just this angry little Italian dude <laughs> <laughs> walking in like because he was a big guy because he was like six two right. six, three he said yeah you know, he's just described as a short italian guy come walking just absolutely off his nut just swearing and carrying on and he knew straight away it was al capone everyone knew who al capone was and he said right. this guy all of a sudden was just screaming at the other two this guy's a rat yeah he's done this he's done that i want him dead one of you guys i need to kill him right now and so the two guys are arguing with each other over who was going to kill him. He says, oh, I can't kill him. It's my brother. You know, like it's my brother-in-law. Bro. Oh, you know, my wife will see, you will notice the guilt on my face if I do anything to him. And the other guy's going, yeah, I've grown up with him my whole life. He's like a, like a brother. He said, I can't do it. And they're arguing Capone's going off his nut. <laughs> he said, it just all heated up. And he said, behind the bar in this back room, he said there was like a, a gun, like a handgun underneath. And he just went, here's my opportunity. Al Capone's right here. He wants this guy dead. He goes, so I just reached under, grabbed the gun, walked over this guy. He said, put the gun towards the back of his head and just blew his brains out. <laughs> and I just God. went, holy crap. And he said, all of a sudden, everyone sort of just jumped back when I did it and just looked at me and went, what the? F-? I won't say what he exactly said. And <laughs> <laughs> family show. And Al Capone just yeah, looked at me and said, and like, we were only just trying to scare him. We, we really didn't want him dead. We were just trying to scare him. And he's like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. So he thought at the time that he was in strife. But then Al Capone said to him, how do you feel after doing that to someone that you don't even know who it was, a complete stranger? And he goes, to be honest, I feel nothing. So I don't know who the guy is. I just, you want him dead? I did it. And because he thought, this is my way. This is my opportunity to be noticed. And he was. Wow. So he reckons from that point onwards, and because he was like, at the time he was 18, he was 6'2", 6'3", he was a big guy. He looked a lot mm-hmm. older than what he was. But he wasn't Australian, had an Australian accent. So Capone just said, he said that Capone said to him, how do you feel about doing this? If I asked you to bump off other people, would you do it? And he goes, yeah, not a problem. So all of a sudden he just became like Al Capone's go-to go-to person and he said the reason and i said to him how did you get away with doing this and he said because he said i would walk into a place i would shoot someone i would walk out i would not talk i would not say anything i'd just go and do my job and get out right he said no one knew my name no one knew my yeah no one heard me speak he said and i just blended in yeah back into the background even though he was a big guy so i'm assuming there must have been some other big guys at the time for him to be able yeah um, God, that that is a weird thing, but I imagine he probably used a revolver for one, because then he wouldn't have any kind of shell or anything else, and it had to be crowded back then too. Yeah, well, didn't really get into <laughs> it. Was I was so intrigued with the story that I'm intrigued in how this guy can just casually say, "Okay, boom, let me just shoot somebody." Yeah, but I even mean, as an older person, that's... when I said to him, "Yeah, how do you feel about everything you did?" He goes. It was just a job. That's kind of scary. 
kind of cold. When you look back at it, you sort of think, wow, that's really, really cold to be able to yeah, I mean, to be able to separate yourself from you've taken somebody else's life and then be able to separate yourself. And I'm sure a psychologist would would give it a term. I'm sure he was um, a sociopath. Had to be, had to be. So yeah, so it was. So he went through. He just told me, yeah, like a few details on like other jobs that they did, and and he did mention the yeah, the Saint Valentine's Day massacre. Now, what happened there? Did he go into what went down, details and stuff? Didn't get into specifics. Just said that he just said that he was there the day it happened. Hmm. Now, now he didn't tell me that. Yeah, was he one of the you know, the four that supposedly there was four people or five people there, or whether he was driving? Was he one of the shooters? He didn't get into the exact specifics, but he just said I was there on the day that that happened. And what got reported was pretty close to what really happened. <laughs> that they were ambushed, shot, and you know, to basically prove a point. Wow. So Yeah, that was a gang war thing, if I recall. I think off the top of my head, was it Bugsy Moran group was the ones that got shot? Uh Bugsy Siegel? No, no, Bugsy Siegel there was I Bugsy didn't know Siegel, there was Bugsy Moran. Was there Bugsy Moran? Could be I, God, the old Chicago gangland stuff. Well, if I was a teenager, I'd probably still remember. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but anyway, so he sort of he didn't get into a lot of detail on that because it was probably one of those things that I didn't know a huge amount about it either. Yeah, you know, like more of that stuff. I've I've seen more movies over the, probably the last twenty years about all those things that happened back then. That even though I was intrigued by it all when he was in as a patient, you also didn't have the internet. Like while he's talking to you, you couldn't just have the have your computer in front of you and go. Sure. Oh, yeah. So, so he was there, and you start typing in names <laughs> to, to see yeah. if it was to see if you could back it up. You're purely going on what he was telling you. And yep, you're right. Bugs Moran. There was a Bugs Moran. Yep, the yeah. Northside Gang. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that was the group who actually got shot. So, yes. So yeah. So anyway, so he's he's taking me through this, and he was telling me about yeah, you know, we made the, the amount of money that they were making. He said the amount of money they just pretty much pissed against the wall, and and he said the amount of politicians and actors and actresses that just wanted to hang around this like elite group of people who were so far above what everybody else was basically doing, and but all of a sudden he was started he started talking about when I said to him, how did you get away and why are yeah. you the one person that got away when everybody else in that era just seemed to get gunned down shot killed it at one point or another and he said that he could see the writing on the wall so he obviously he also came across to me as a really really intelligent guy okay that pragmatist of sort what was that a pragmatist of sorts yeah just he he wasn't dumb he could see like he could see the writing on the wall that, you know, pressure was coming down, whether I'm not sure the exact timing about when did prohibition end? What year was that? Oh God. Um, thirties sometime. Yeah. So, so whether uh, there was pressure of all that happening or, or what was going on or that, you know, everyone knew there's always pressure on Capone, but he just knew it was coming to an end and it was time to actually get out. If he stayed in there, it wasn't going to end well. So 1933, so he decided that he had made money, had a good time and all that, but it was time to actually get away. Just 
get away from it. But he knew it was one of those things you can't just sort of go, yeah, I've had enough, guys. I think I'm just going <laughs> to hang up my gun <laughs> and, um, you yeah, know, go and live a quiet life somewhere else. So he told me that he went and approached uh, Capone to finance a business venture over in Australia, which is how he ended up back in Australia. Hmm. And at the time, he was telling me that they, they used to call it, I think it was the circle of death, and it was like a it was like a metal dome, and a motorbike rider would hop in there and start riding his motorbike around in circles inside this uh, sphere. Hmm. And he'd okay. seen it in America, and he said, I want to bring, I, I think that would go really well in Australia. And he asked Capone to help finance the money to get it over there. Now, that's their part. That's the only part that I've never really dug into to find out about the sphere of death or what it was, whatever it was called. So if somebody's listening to this and they know a bit more of the history, it would be really, really interesting if anyone could find the history and how that started in Australia and what date that started. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing it if I look it up, but I don't have it down. So yeah, but, very so interesting. It's really cool, to actually. And that's what I mean. So through this whole story, when he told me the whole thing, it wasn't something that I've I've sat back and gone, oh, I'm going to do all this research to finally figure out if this guy was telling me the truth or not. Because at the time, it just seemed so real and so realistic that I never really dug into it too much. And it was only us talking recently that it came up in conversation that you went, <laughs> I need to hear this story. And oh yes. So what it was, he then brought it over to Australia, got it financed, and then wasn't long after that, Capone and all that all got brought down, and he just never went back to the states. He stayed. He stayed in Australia. Now, did he keep his nose clean in Australia? It doesn't sound like doesn't it. If he had like a it, no a uh, hit out on him, and it sounds like he hit his own wife. Well, <laughs> no. I would say for, from. From what he was saying that like it was in the 60s or whatever when he got shot, the 60s or early 70s when he actually got shot in the leg. So I'd say from when he came back over here, whether it was the you know, late 30s or you know, the 30s or whatever it was that he got back to Australia, I would say he did not keep his nose clean to be, end up being shot later on. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just wondering about that and what so he didn't go you didn't really get into that no i never really got into that part because like i saw him it was only like three or four times that i actually saw him as a patient and and then the conversations sort of just ended but one of the things he he told me was i said how have you kept this all to yourself you've never said anything he goes he goes i've got this box and in this box he said i've got photographs documents i've got all this information that backs up everything that i've been telling and I said, hmm. seriously? I said, why haven't you divulged it? He goes, because there's still too many people that are still around that if I divulge it now, he said, there'd be people that'd be affected by it. He said, so I've actually set this box aside and it's in my will that when I pass away, that this is to be handed to my daughter. And then he said, I would love someone to write a book on it. Yeah, telling this whole story. He said, I've got it all documented. It's all dated, everything. So someone could actually write something about it. And... And I, like, he'd be dead now. He would have died years ago. But no one's ever written the book. And it's ne and nothing's ever come up about it. So I often wonder, did that box just disappear? Did the box just look like did somebody open and go, oh, it's just a load of old rubbish and they've thrown it out? Or is that box still sitting in the bottom of someone's basement or garage <laughs> and it's got all this golden information in there and it's just sitting there waiting for somebody to open it? 
I would love to read that. It sounds like he was using us as insurance policy. Yeah, it, it was it was funny, but he, he I'm pretty sure he said that his daughter knew that the box existed. But yeah, it could also be one of those things like he was fairly old. I don't know how old his daughter was at the time. Yeah, did something yeah, was she the only one that knew about it? And did she pass away before him or this sort of and and because in this where I was working then was in Tully. So and that was one of the questions I actually said to him. I said, How does a Tully came from be a a hitman for Capone. He said, no, it's more like how does a hitman for Capone end up becoming a Tully cane farmer? So sugar cane. Now, uh, that seems like an odd job. When you say that he was a cane farmer, does that just mean that he owned like a cane plantation and then had people working for him yeah, to yeah, do it? Yeah, so, so he owned a farm. Okay. So that was his uh, like retirement. Uh, it was something he, he said that he, other than probably killing people, he said he always wanted to just... Um, have a <laughs> Felicia's wanted, range always wanted to have a farm so okay when you decide to get out of that whole thing altogether he bought wanted to buy a farm but he wanted to buy it so far away from where he was which i think may have been down in mm-hmm. the sydney area when uh he was shot um with tully north queensland which is in the middle of nowhere which is about hmm. an hour and a half south of cairns Wow, so nobody would be looking for him there, I guess. No, so he was sort of hidden away. And, and Tully itself is just a small town of you know, maybe a couple of thousand people, if that. And probably back then even less. Wow, what a crazy, crazy story. Yeah, so, it's great how it connects the world. <laughs> what what, what I, I often think about is what happened to the box he was talking about because he was, he was so convincing that that box existed and the information that was in that box there were just photographs of just people that were taken at the time and and just documents and just so much evidence to back up everything that he had just told me and i think i did ask him can i have the box and he said no but yeah, it was worth a try um <laughs> <laughs> it was worth it yeah, i can ask him so yeah, whether yeah, whether he was ever going to write a book called you know the one that got away or or not, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> it's uh, I don't know. I found it. It was an intriguing story, and and I also think this is why. Yeah, whether what he told me was true or not, whether it was slightly embellished, whether he would just happen to be in that era, around that time, and and lived in that town, and everything else he made up, I don't know. But I think there's some truth somewhere weaved in between everything that he actually said. Yeah, I guess we'll never know because you don't have any records of him. And oh. I'm guessing you closed the office long ago and probably destroyed the patient records that were old. Yeah, well, I was actually back then, I was working from uh, a doctor's surgery down there. So I used to just go down there one, you know, like on a regular visit just to sort of actually, that was the thing. It was, I saw him three times, but it was over like a three month period. Because I used to only go down mm. there once a month to actually uh, do this um, like visiting, so all the records would have been part of that actual doctor's surgery. I never really would have had part of my own my own records because I was actually working for them. Mm. So yeah, it was it was interesting, but but I think that's something that I think every person today, yeah, look at your your grandparents and great grandparents and people that are older that you know. And put some time aside and sit down with them and just talk to them about their life. The things that they've seen, you will never understand. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And it's a way of um, 
capturing history. I'd actually encourage everybody to do podcasts with their own family. Yeah. Sit down with your parents. If your parents are still, like my dad died when he was 49. So, you know, I never really got a chance to get to know know him and, and talk to him and, and things that he did. But my mum's now 74. And, yeah, and we talk a lot about different things that she's done in the past. And, but it's just a different life. And I know my grandparents, yeah, before that, yeah, what they would have seen in their life would be completely different again. So I think if anyone's got any older people in their life that they can talk to, even though they might be a bit, I don't know, sound like they're nutty sometimes. Some, <laughs> Maybe that's the fun part. Yeah, they've still got some interesting stories to tell. And like I said, that that lady who was 101, I think she was 104 the last time I saw her. And this is going back oh, probably be at least 15, 20 years ago as well. So you, wow. Been, she, like I remember her when she was saying, oh, I was born in like 1886 or something. It was something ridiculous. And just what she saw in that first 40. So she's lived through over three centuries. Yeah. It was just incredible. It was absolutely incredible what she had um seen in her lifetime sure and and what was staggering about her that she still actually had her marbles even though she was a bit deaf and she was a bit blind she was still actually switched on and could hold a conversation wow wow that's staggering well tyson thank you so much for coming on and sharing this no no it's good talking about it. like i said we, we only we briefly mentioned it like uh last week just in conversation and I'm glad, what I'm glad, I'm glad I got to share that story with somebody and I'm glad it's now recorded that I had this conversation with somebody because and the legend if somebody ever finds that box and makes a movie about <laughs> it, I can say, okay, at least that I, I, at least they'll know where, where, who the guy was, the, where it all started. So yeah, maybe that's something. Okay. So we've got to grow my audience to be as huge as possible. So the world will hear. That's it. We need to. Oh, well, you've you've already got one of the biggest podcasts in the world already, haven't you? Not quite, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I strive. I must have been. Hey, thanks. I, I do love the show. Your, your the guests that you have on here, the stories that people tell, the different backgrounds of everybody. It's uh, it's an amazing podcast. So, and to be on here twice, to be a repeat of that's right, is fantastic. And it's awesome having you, man. Okay, thanks, thanks a lot. Hey there, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I did. Tyson Franklin, I consider to be both a great podcaster and a personal friend. And as such, I've added an episode of his to the end of this. It's a short one that he did with one of the most famous podcasters in the world, John Lee Dumas. Hope you like it. I took 100% responsibility for everything. Everything that went wrong and everything to this day that goes wrong in my business is my fault. I don't care if my virtual assistant, you know, when it did some huge mistake, I hired that virtual assistant. I trained that virtual assistant. It's all me. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, and welcome to this week's episode of It's No Secret with Dr. T, the small business podcast that helps you earn more, work less, and enjoy what you do more each day. Now, my guest today is John Lee Dumas, also known as JLD to a lot of people, and he was the first person who started doing podcasting on a daily basis, and he did over 2,000 podcasts on Entrepreneur on Fire. From that, he was able to create a seven-figure income year 
after year. So in the podcasting world, he has become one of the most successful podcasters, but he's also a very, very successful entrepreneur. And today, I talked to him about why he lives in Puerto Rico, and also about the JLD brand, and what it's like to work while you're traveling. And then we sort of joke around a little bit about him being a bit of a legend, and me being a legend in my own lunchbox, but he actually loved that term, which is why today's episode is called Legends in Our Own Lunchbox. So before I get into the actual interview itself, I just remind people, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, and you've been enjoying it, please tell your friends about it, and if you happen to be on iTunes or your own podcast platform, and you happen to see the review button, give a little click and give us a review. Even a three-star review is better than no review at all. Okay, so without further ado, let's get in to my interview with John Lee Dumas. Okay, so John, you live in Puerto Rico. What I'm always curious, because I always tell people you've got to look outside your comfort zone, which sometimes means moving away from where you were born and bred and actually spread your wings a little bit more. What took you to Puerto Rico? You know, honestly, it's kind of it was a nature of my own success in a way. I mean, I was starting the podcast when I was living in Maine. And it was a great experience to start in my home state. Uh, moved cross country to San Diego, which is about 3,400 miles away. So probably kind of similar from moving from Sydney to uh, Perth, something along those lines. And that was a cool experience. But then the show, you know, really took off and the business took off and we were raking in some serious dollars revenue-wise, you know, seven figures for multiple years, which, of course, seven figures of revenue means a lot of money to the tax man. And the tax man's great, of course. We need to pay our taxes. But I said, you know, Mr. CPA, which is – I'm not sure if you guys use that word for your accountant. Uh, yeah. But our tax, our tax accountant, um, I said, you know, Mr. Accountant, um, if you can find a way for me to legally pay – less than 51% in taxes, because that's what it was to, wow. uh, living in California. Um, I'd appreciate it. And he said, you know, you can move to Puerto Rico. You'll pay a flat 4% tax. And I said, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> so are there, are there many people from the United States that moved to Puerto Rico for that reason? There's, I won't say a lot, because it's a big move. You know, you have to be in the right situation life-wise. You know, you, a lot of people have obviously family and kids and commitments and ties to communities. And so it's just not as easy to pick up and move for some people as it is for others. And, you know, frankly, you've got to be making a certain amount of money for it to really make sense, because you only pay a lot of taxes when you make a lot of money. And so there's not a ton of people who make a lot of money you know, and, and have a lifestyle and location independent business. You know, you can make a lot of money working on Wall Street, but you got to be on Wall Street. And Wall Street's just our, like, New York Stock Exchange little uh, thing we have here in the States. And so um, it's an interesting combination that you have to kind of fit to, to make it make sense. But there's definitely hundreds and hundreds and definitely into the thousands of gringos who have moved from the states to puerto rico which you know by the way i'm not sure if you know this um but puerto rico is a u.s territory so yeah. you don't even need a passport to come to puerto rico as a u.s citizen and um you don't lose citizenship and it's again it's basically just like another state for us okay and most of the gringos that are there including yourself are, are there for tax reasons or do some people move there because it's just a beautiful place I definitely uh, tax reasons is the biggest draw by a long shot because the Caribbean, there's a ton of beautiful places. You know, there's a British Virgin Islands. There's the American Virgin Islands. There's, you know, the Bahamas. There's Bermuda. There's the Florida Keys. So, 
you know, to choose Puerto Rico amongst Haiti, Jamaica, you know, there has to be a reason because there's just so many options and definitely what's called act 20 is the reason. So is there a certain amount of time you need to spend there per year or can you just come and go as you please? There isn't, there isn't any restrictions. It has to be your closest connection, meaning you have to, Puerto Rico has to be your home more so than any other place in the world. So you want to be here for at least six months of the year and you don't want another place to like potentially be construed as, you know, your home. Like, so, you know, we moved down here, we're here eight, nine months of the year. We bought a home down here. I mean, we're all in we love it. Um, but you, you could do it a little, you could, um, play a little a little lighter than we do. Like you could be here for 185 days and, you know, really just kind of do it that way and still tip the scales. But yeah. Okay. So do you think there's a time limit on yourself that eventually you will move back to the United States to live? Or you're thinking as long as you're making the money that you're making, you're going to keep staying there where the, <laughs> where the tax is really good. It sounds like, it sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as... As soon as I stop making the kind of money I'm making, which could be next year or might not be, you know, 20 for 20 years, might be never, then it might be never. Yeah. And, you know, that'll be when the decision starts. I just can't imagine ever going back to paying 51 cents on the dollar um, when I'm now used to paying, you know, four cents on the dollar. I just can't go back. Because it is one of those things now that, that John Lee Dumas has become a brand. You are, you are a brand. Right within yourself. Right, exactly. And you know, that's the thing is I love the location independence of the brand that I built. You know, Kate and I are going to be spending 65 days um, in Europe over the, over the fall, which will be amazing. You know, when we met in person, you know, I was on a 60 day trip, New Zealand, um, Australia, and then London over the course of 60 days. I did 20 days in each one of those countries. Yeah. Um, and it was an amazing experience and I loved it and I love traveling. Um, so, you know, we spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico and then we also spent a good amount of time on the road as well. Yeah. Well, Omar Zenholm, he was talking about when he did his eight week traveling experience to see, can you work and travel at the same time and how, how good it is. And he said that was actually quite difficult. Yeah. And we have completely different businesses. You know, he runs a software business, you know, SaaS software as a service. It's a huge um, you know, webinar platform where he has tons of developers and tons of customers and, you know, thousands of support emails to deal with. You know, we just have a very small team. You know, we keep things simple. We keep our, our, our net profits high and we keep our overhead low and we just make things happen. So if, if somebody was, because we're, yeah, we're both, well, you're, you're a podcast legend and I'm just starting. I'm a legend in my own lunchbox. Uh, <laughs> i've never heard that before but i'm going to use it i'll give you credit twice and then it's mine forever okay yeah and i i, I don't have a problem with that at all but, <laughs> but it's one of those things so, so at the moment you, you're like um yeah you've, you've created your own brand based on who you are but your background you were a marine to start with so yeah not specifically a marine you know marines they're very specific about that because you know they are the few the proud the yeah. marines i was an army officer so i was in the u.s army for eight years, and uh, yeah, it was quite an experience. So, would you say your what you do in the beginning sometimes really shapes who you become as a person later on? So, when some people are young and they're not sure, I'm not sure what to do. That it's just just do anything because that's going to shape you in your future. All those experiences that you gather. Yeah, I mean, at least you'll find out things you don't like. You make the wrong choice too, which is valuable as well. 
Yeah, well, I used to kill chickens uh, going through university, so um, I figured out really quickly <laughs> that I didn't want to kill chickens the whole my whole life. But I must I admit, it, it did teach me a few things. Because you seem like a kind soul. I don't think you'd like you know wringing chickens' necks for a for a lifetime occupation. No, you let the machine do it. But I did some I did some really crappy jobs. <laughs> but all those crappy jobs, I learnt things from them. I learnt that some managers that I had were really good to work with, and some were really bad. And and I hoped when I had my own businesses that I was going to be like the better ones and not the, mm. not the bad ones. See, and that's great. And that was the same way in the army. Like I had some amazing commanding officers and I had some horrible ones. And I'll give you a specific example of traits that I grew to hate um, from my commanding officers. Those that had this was their inability or just their flat out refusal to take responsibility for anything. You know, you're the commander you're the officer in charge. Whatever happens is your fault, 100%. 100% responsibility is called extreme ownership. And officers that took extreme ownership, I admired to the moon and back. And officers who just tried to you know, slough off everything onto people that were lower in the chain of command or to somebody else, I just had zero respect for. And I said, I'm never going to be like that person. I'm always going to be like that person. And that's why I was able to be a successful entrepreneur in my mind was because I took 100% responsibility for everything. Everything that went wrong and everything to this day that goes wrong in my business is my fault. I don't care if my virtual assistant, you know, when it did some huge mistake, I hired that virtual assistant. I trained that virtual assistant. It's all me. The buck stops at me. I take 100% ownership and 100% responsibility for everything. And in the military, again, I was shown what it meant to do that and what it meant and what it looked like when you didn't do that. And that shaped, you know, the person that I became. I think the good part with that, when you take ownership and things go wrong, you can also take credit sometimes when things go right. Yeah. So I think if you're willing to say, hey, it was my fault and you put your hand up, you can also punch it, yeah, hit yourself on the chest and go, yes, once again, I am a legend in my own lunchbox because I'll take full credit for that success. So what, what's, I'm a what, legend in my own lunchbox. See, I had to say it just so I could remember it, but that's classic. <laughs> you can write, yeah, write it down, get a T-shirt that done it. So you, can put that at the, you can put that in the front of the Freedom Journal. Oh, man. Okay, I love it. I'm on it. So what's next for John Lee Dumas? So I'm working on what I think is going to be the biggest course of my life to date. And, you know, I say that with the full knowledge, by the way, that it might be a complete flop. And I'm okay with that. I definitely don't want it to be, but it, it might be. But, uh, no, I'm pretty excited. I am creating a uh, super funnel, I'm calling it. It's called the super funnel. And it's starting with a completely free course on what I think – Pretty much 99% of entrepreneurs who are early in the game, they're going to need to take this course, which is why I'm excited about it. And it's called Your Big Idea because that's one thing that I've recognized in the five and a half plus years that I've been rocking it as an entrepreneur is, you know, we all have ideas, Mm. Tyson, but what's the big idea? What's the one that you go all in on, that you spend all your time, all your energy and all your focus on? Well, it's hard to figure that out. So I created a completely free course that in three hours you will know with certainty what your big idea is. And so all people need to do is visit yourbigidea.io 
and you can take that free course. And in three hours, when you follow my step-by-step process, it's a three-hour course, you will have your big idea, period. And that's available right now? Yes, available. It's free. That's cool. I'm going to go and check it out. As soon as we finish this recording, I'm going to go and check that out. <laughs> and I'm going to go and register because, I, I, like you said, I have a million ideas. But trying to figure out what the one big idea is to keep myself focused is always a problem. Totally. So, John, thank you for being on This No Seat with Dr. T. I've had a lot of fun during our conversation. We've had a few laughs. And I hope you've enjoyed yourself as well. Thanks, Dr. T. This was a blast. I'm a legend in my own mailbox. Oh, no. Lunchbox. (laughs) (laughs) You stuffed that up, didn't you? (laughs) Oh, man. Never again. Okay. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Take care, Dr. T. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with John Lee Dumas. And I know it was only a short episode. You know, it's uh, sort of probably about just a little bit longer than when I do my five-minute Fridays and a lot shorter than my normal episodes. But I think there were some great takeaway points from that. And one of the things that stood out to me more than anything else was when John was talking about what he learned in the Army and about good and bad leadership and about taking ownership or actually taking extreme ownership for the decisions you make within your business. When something goes wrong, you cannot blame anybody else in your business. You've got to take it all on board yourself. And I think we need to learn from our own bosses we've had in the past, good and bad. What did you like about the leadership and what did you not like? And try and make sure that you're only doing the things that you like. Don't be repeating the things you didn't like because if you didn't like them, almost guarantee your team doesn't like them either. So if you have any thoughts after listening to this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Whether it's this episode or another episode or one of my 5-Minute Fridays, you you can leave comments on my website, tysonfranklin.com, or you can reach out to me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Tyson E. Franklin. Now, before I go, just want to mention the small business event I'm running in Cairns on the 17th and 18th of August this year. I have three speakers coming over from the United States. There's Dave Freeze, Tom Foster, and Buster Tate. And I also have seven local speakers, local small business entrepreneurs from Cairns. And it is going to be an amazing two days. So go to my website, just click on the event section, and from there you can register. There's only going to be 50 people at this event, and I think it'll sell out pretty quick. So get on board now, get yourself a ticket. It's going to be an amazing two days. Okay, that's it from me. I will talk to you again next week. Look after yourself and look after your family. Bye for now.